I'm Siobhan McClay, she, her. And I'm Jen Jackson, she, her. And this is Embodiment for the Rest of Us, a podcast series exploring topics within intersections that exist in fat liberation. In this show, we interview professionals and those with lived experience alike to learn how they are affecting radical change and how we can all make this world a safer place for those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces. Captions and content warnings are provided in the show notes for each episode, including specific timestamps, so that you can skip triggering content anytime that feels supportive to you. This podcast is a representation of our co-hosts and guest experiences and may not be reflective of yours. These conversations are not medical advice and are not a substitute for mental health or nutrition support. In addition, the conversations held here are not exhaustive in scope or breadth. These topics, these perspectives are not complete and are always in process. These are just the highlights. Just like posts on social media or any other podcast, this is just a glimpse. We are always interested in any feedback on this process if something needs to be addressed. You can email us at listener, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, at embodimentfortherestofus.com. And now for today's episode. Happy 2022, and welcome to episode seven of season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of Us podcast. In today's episode, we interviewed the inspiration for this podcast, my therapist, Sheila Simonera, she, her, about her embodiment journey. Sheila Simonera, LCSW, is a social worker and owner of To Bear Witness Therapy. Over the past 17 years, she has had the privilege of being case manager, program developer, individual and group therapist, clinical supervisor, AccuDetox specialist, professor, and trainer. Her primary focus is supporting helping professionals with compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. Sheila also specializes in working with individuals dealing with trauma, addictions, and justice involvement all through the lens of trauma-informed care and harm reduction. She loves punk rock, yoga, traveling, art, and her two beautiful pit bulls. To learn more about her work, check out our website, bearwitnesstherapy.com. In listening to today's episode ahead of its publication, Sheila wanted to clarify that she does not believe that you have to be in quote-unquote recovery to create positive change or to share their lived experience. Drug users unions, which include former and current users, do radical, exciting, essential work to protect each other and battle stigma. Despite being in survival mode, people are still able to have an incredible and compassionate impact on the community. Sheila is so proud of the work she's done as a treatment provider, but truly the voices of folks with lived experience are far more powerful and so impactful. As you can probably already tell, dear listeners, this is a transparent and heartfelt conversation we are sharing with you today. We hope you enjoy the collective experience as much as we did. And off we go. Hi there. We're incredibly and humbly excited to have the inspiration of this podcast and Siobhan's therapist here with us today. Hi there. We have Sheila from here in Albuquerque, an incredible therapist. Hi. Hi. Incredible therapist, educator, and human being, from what I hear. There's so much to reflect on coming your way as you're listening, and we can't wait. We're just really excited to get straight into it, and I'd like to know, how are you today? I am super excited to be here. Doing good. Um, I'm a big 
podcast fan in general, a true crime podcast fan. So I listened to a lot of them, but I've never actually been on one. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. We're so honored for your first. (laughs) That made me really excited to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's so nice to be with you. I'm so glad to hear how you are. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I'm thrilled. I'm so everyone listening. I'm sweaty. I'm super red, and I'm just like so excited. (laughs) So excited. Oh my gosh, let's do this. Okay. As we sit here recording in these bodies of ours and with how we feel in them today, we'd love to start with asking the grounding question about the themes of our podcast and how they occur to you. Can you share with us what embodiment means to you and what was your embodiment journey like, if you feel comfortable sharing that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I love the name of your podcast, by the way, too. It's it's great. Thank you. Um, So I think embodiment to me definitely implies being awake. I think it means a belonging or sort of empowered claiming of space or presence, like whether that's uh, physical, physically or emotionally. And for myself, I think I feel very embodied through spirituality and creativity and I think it's it's absolutely a very complicated journey. Uh, I think I, I, it definitely started off in a pretty painful fashion, as it did for so many of us. Uh, I grew up in a pretty difficult home, to say the least, in Georgia. And I grew up very much wanting to belong and just be like everybody else. Like, I just really wanted to be a skinny white girl. Like that was my, my wish. And, um, that, so that really shaped my childhood, but, you know, as I got into my teen years, I became really involved in the punk scene and the riot girl movement, which was all about questioning beauty standards and expectations of women. And that really shaped who I am today without a doubt. Um, kind of the ideas I learned from it about how liking yourself or liking your body is a really radical act. It's definitely this, this form of rebellion and and a, a way to find some freedom too. So, so that was a very influential part of my journey for sure. Um, But I think it's taken a very long time for me to even feel like somewhat comfortable with taking up space or feeling like I deserve to own space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know it's, it's hard for all of us to have this, this journey of embodiment. Yeah. Wow. I really like the idea of being awake as part of embodiment. I never thought of it that way. I really, I really like that. There's, it makes me think of like this, we talk about it a lot, being versus doing, um, just kind of doing a, a way of existing, but instead just being, which to me is being awake, being awake in the space, being present in the space that I'm in. I really like that. Mm, I also honed in on that. And I was thinking mm-hmm. like, wow, what does it mean to be awakened? And do we mm-hmm. notice it before it happens, while it happens, afterwards, looking back, it really just made me want to think about when I'm awake when I'm asleep and I might not notice. And even like thinking about being awake 
without constraints was something that my mind was kind of taking that and going somewhere with that. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think of the next thing that you said, ah, empowered claiming of space mm-hmm. or presence. I thought, wow, being awake, but, and also claiming it and sitting in it and know, like knowing what it feels like to be awake just sounded incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting with, um, Because I think we can be awake, but it can be a very uh, painful sort of uh, awareness. And so I think there's kind of a difference to me when it's like we're awake, but but also empowered. So it it has a different quality to it, I guess, is how I think of of it. Yeah. Feels more nuanced to me, more like richer, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of depth to that. Yeah, that's really you. incredible. That's yeah. Oh, your absolutely. work was great. And this actually makes me think of the next question that I wanted to ask. Um, in thinking about how difficult, how painful, and challenging it can be, um, this is my natural way of thinking: is to go, yeah, but how can it be great? How can it be okay? How can it be? supportive. So it makes me want to ask what lights you up about this work, embodiment work or embodiment processes? And when do you feel most embodied? So I definitely feel most embodied through creativity, but I was thinking about this question about it's the first things that come to mind for me are things like art or writing, but I also think in my work specifically, it there is so much creating with clients that happens, like creating a shift in mindset or creating a new way to handle a situation. I love like supporting people and trying to create a new narrative for themselves rather than the one that has been imposed on them by other people or society or whatever it may be. So, so yeah, I think those are some of the, the ways I can strongly feel embodied and, and awake in that way. I love the idea of creating within work. I have often struggled with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to do my work and then I'm going to try to be creative, but like feeling like this merging, it's really expansive. I mean, I'm only going to be a therapist for a few more months, but it still feels like for the next few months, um, it's a really beautiful way of finding creativity in what I'm doing with my clients. Absolutely. Yeah. That that creation process happens can happen in so many different ways. Cause I think I used to feel like the sort of separation between Mm -hmm. like, here's creative pursuits, here's work when really the two can, can go hand in hand. And I think should go hand in hand actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I will say as part of the embodiment journey, um, I don't, I, I think the pandemic has had a terrible effect on my own embodiment. Mm. You know, I think I've, mm. I've very much shied away from embodiment in a lot of ways. Like I think in, in like that numbness served a necessary yes. purpose in the past year and a half and ongoing. Mm-hmm. So, so I feel like it's more about caring for what we need in that moment, which sometimes might not be embodiments yeah it's sort of something I've just been like mulling over the idea of disembodiment sometimes is a trauma response and it's one that saves you in the moment Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
protective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that it doesn't have to be a bad thing. No. That, but yeah, it can be a protect, protective thing. And I, I think a definite, I was thinking about like actual practices um, in, of embodiment that I've used. And in the past, a, a really helpful one for me was meditation. And it still mm-hmm. is, but I do it differently now. In the past, I had a kind of a more of a set practice where I would do it every morning or and sometimes every evening. And now it's more woven throughout my day where I'll just take minutes and moments of mindfulness just to like check in with where my body's at, where my emotions are at, and just to get kind of refocused and grounded again. So I think almost like these small doses of embodiment have worked better for me lately than mm. kind of like bigger, bigger ones. Mm. Well, that's so interesting to me. I'm having, I definitely think that's a pretty common experience that mm-hmm. we need things oh, yeah. differently right now. And mm-hmm. also for me, that sprung from uh, what I usually do is not cutting it right now. Something about this yeah. isn't giving me what I need. I have different needs, more needs, whatever that might be. Um, I'm also, I find that so interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. I'm also finding it really important throughout the day to take a breath, to not look at a computer screen. That's where I'm looking at everything, um, to sit out in my backyard and feeling so privileged to do so. And also really needing it that I can have birds and squirrels and things in my backyard and just be with them for a moment. Like literally I did it earlier for 30 seconds before we got on this very zoom. I was like, all I have is 30 seconds. Okay. And I just sat out there in the sun and got something just Mm -hmm. resourcing that feels really important. And also makes me think about, um, how, how would I phrase this? how like collectively the current conditioning that we have is that we need things to be a particular way, meditation to be a particular way, rest Mm -hmm. to be a particular way, self-care, all these sorts of phrases like that, that they, even movement, thinking about other things with bodies, that they have to come in particular amounts of time and be in specific ways. And earlier when you said that embodiment can feel like a rebellious practice, yeah. It was making me think of that, how important it feels for me to encourage in my clients and to keep reinforcing in myself as if I'm my own client, that it's okay to have that space. It doesn't have to look a particular way. My way is okay. I'm really hearing that in what you said. So thank you for that. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really like what you're saying about taking like 30 seconds to to sit and listen and be outside. And, and I think for so many helping professionals right now, it feels, it may feel like I don't have time to do self-care, but we all do have 30 seconds. We have a minute here and there. We can all weave in those moments throughout a day just to help us be uh, more responsive and, and just to like care for ourselves as much as we can, wherever we can. So yeah, like you're saying, it doesn't have to look this specific way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what other ways do you use creativity in embodiment outside of your work? Um, I, I love art. My, yeah, my original background was in um, multimedia arts, but I've always mm-hmm. loved art and writing and photography. So those 
pursuits definitely bring me a lot of meaning and I feel very focused and present when I'm doing things like that. But I also think relationships too, like uh, with my animals, for example, with my dogs, like I feel very present and embodied when I'm spending time with them or touching them, things like that too. That made me think of looking in a dog's eyes. There's something about that that is a really present. Um, it's actually, I'm finding it hard to come up with words for that. There's just something very special in that moment. Oh, completely. Yes. I love doing that. One of my dogs loves gazing into my eyes and we'll just do it. And I'm like, this is the best feeling. It feels so good. Yeah. It's like, I love, I'm not quite sure how to describe that. There's something amazing about that. It's really, really wonderful. And this, um, as we're talking about this, I'm just thinking or trying to think, um, how like embodiment is so personal, even in these smaller bits that we're talking about, do you have any thoughts about making this accessible for everyone or for people who are interested in embodied practices, but maybe needing it to start, like start low and go slow kind of thing, like something like that. I really think kind of anything we can do to pause is a way of moving towards embodiment. So kind of getting out of this autopilot that we all get into in whatever form. I mean, for me, it's generally my phone that Mm. sends me into autopilot. So whenever we can just pause, I think that ultimately helps us cultivate more of that presence of embodiment. So, and I think that is a very accessible thing that any of us can do, whether it's breathing, whether it is just getting grounded through music or sense or whatever, whatever makes someone feel more present. So keeping it simple, I think is a very powerful thing that it doesn't have to be. I think it's great when it's certain practices, like more specific kind of practices, but I don't really think it has to be regimented or anything like that. Mm. Something that's really coming up for me as I'm thinking about this, I love the idea of slowing down to embodiment because when I think of my own journey, when I think of trying to be embodied on a regular basis, it's this like, I gotta do, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this. And I feel like that often comes up in response to my rejection of diet culture. So I'm not doing these very regimented things with my food or with my movement. So since I'm not doing that, I should be really hyper-focused on being so anti that, that I'm I'm just super embodied. I'm super, you know, haze informed. I'm super this, I'm super that. And the idea of slowing down, like I, we try to be really present during our, during our interviews and like my body, like I can feel my body like tensing up just thinking about it, honestly. Um, so I like the remind, which I mean, you're my therapist, you already know that. So I'm not making this a therapy session, but slowing down is not my, is not my, my, um, my special skill. So it's very important. Me neither. <laughs> so I'm grateful for the reminder to like slow down and to embody because I have this whole list in my head of what I should be doing. Um, so that's really sticking up for me. And I think that diet culture really informs a lot of the way I just interact with this world, even if I am rejecting it on a daily basis now. Right. So it's almost like, yeah, totally. And and it might almost be about 
like expanding that rejection of diet culture to like be rejecting all the different things that come with it to like that pressure. Um, yeah, to be like these, these people who do self-care and leisure so well, or who do like all these different, different roles so well, um, being like such a great activist or whatever, you know, like, um, that we can put all this pressure on ourselves, which is part of like, you're exactly what you're saying. That is stemming from things like diet culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm getting a lot out of this. (laughs) I had to like pause my (laughs) thoughts. Speaking of slowing down, I had to pause my thoughts. I'm not going to say all of them. You should say all of them. Okay. Maybe I'll say all of them. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of them. Okay. There. For those listening, I was just like showing my paper about how it's this tiny little scribble over here Um, (laughs) that keeping it simple really speaks to me as a function of privilege. So it's making me think of that, that like that's a luxury. That's something that not everyone has to be simple. And I also was thinking about like just thinking about like perfectionist diet culture things and Mm. also the need to perform self-care. And almost the forgetting that we are human beings in community with one another and that self-care often becomes community care because we can't self-care if, if we don't have support, if we don't have um, an awareness uh, among people around us of what we need. Something that I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And as you both were talking about smaller pieces and taking things slower. I was actually thinking of the word obligation that I like the way that diet culture views resting, pausing, um, that to rebel against that sometimes feels really big for me. Like in the way it feels in my body, as you were saying, Siobhan, I was like, Oh, I'm tense too. Like it also makes me feel tense because it can feel like an obligation like not just to model that for my own clients and to appear like I have done it, like this real performance mm-hmm. also to uh, strip that back and make sure that I'm in touch, like with my own why, because diet culture is so what and how, mm-hmm. right? Here's your prescription and here's how you do it. Go forth and then come back and tell me that you failed. So I can say that you just need to go back to the what and how, but it's yeah. really like what we're talking about here are like the why's. When you're talking about being like awake and being awakened earlier, I'm realizing that what I'm thinking about is the why. Like, why? Why would we do that? Why would we want to be embodied? Um, Even and especially when it's painful. Like, what's the importance of that to each of us feels just really amazing. And I was thinking of the phrase and like, this is how like my brain summarized what each of you were saying. Like, it's something we need to tend to. It's a process. It's a practice. It's not like a one-off, like, yes, now I'm embodied or yes, I've self-cared or any of these other, or like, yes, I listened to myself. Like, it's like suddenly everything is different and you never have to do it again. I was just really getting present to the calmness of tending to something like that. And that it could be up to me just makes me feel in my body, although I'm still feeling the tension of the other things. I'm also... (laughs) Just feeling, I feel like I can breathe a little bit more just thinking about it that way. So those were all my thoughts. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you for sharing all of them. Yeah. All of them. Love them. <laughs> you know, I do think, I don't know if, if keeping it simple necessarily has to be a, a privileged perspective. Mm. I think, 
I think that when I think about that concept, it's we can have very complicated, difficult lives, but are the ways we can try to connect with ourselves can be simple, like where it doesn't require money. Like we have to go to some kind of class or a workshop, or we have to take this big chunk of time that we might not have because we're taking care of kids or working or, or whatever is, or, you know, have health issues or whatever might be going on. So I think in some ways, simplifying things can actually make, or the, the, the concept of simplicity can make self-care a little bit more accessible. Mm. That's sort of what I'm processing through. Oh, I love that so, so much. And actually, as I was listening to you, I was like, wow, I was really saying that in such a black and white way. I like took all the nuance out of it by saying that. So thank you for sharing that because. Sure. And also simplicity is so up to the person. What's simple for each of us is something Mm -hmm. I was hearing and what you're saying. That's really important. Yes. Like how individualized that, what, yeah, what self-care looks like is so individualized based on what someone's life looks like, what they want, what they're feeling in that moment, that it could be sometimes people make decisions to, to change their lives in whatever ways. And that's their self-care for other people. It's just stopping and taking a breath and that's your self-care that it can be whatever someone wants it to. But then I think it goes back to what we were talking about, that pressure that it's, it can be so self-defeating if there's this pressure involved with the self-care. So for us to kind of question that and push back on this, this pressure we put on ourselves Mm -hmm. around self-care. This makes me think of, we're going to have an interview with someone, the next person actually named uh, Jess Kennard, and something that has been kind of bouncing around in my head since the conversation with Jess is the idea of, is basic self-care enough, do you think? I, I when, when Jess and I, and Jen was there too, and another colleague, Denise, who will be on another another interview. Um, we talked Yay! about it. Yay! I just got really excited. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that that's surviving. Can, do you think that's enough, or does there have to be something? I'll be asking Justice later too, as well. Um, do you think there has to be some extra movement, or is that? Or can you do like these basic, I took a shower today, I brushed my teeth today, or does there have to be more intention to it for it to be more supportive self-care? Like, where do you, I guess, where do you land on that? Mm. Oh, great question. That is, that's such a good question. It's a really interesting question. I guess I just feel like life is really hard and that people are doing the best they can. And so it's pretty amazing um, for someone to just like get up and brush their teeth and eat a meal. And that's awesome. You know? So I think that if, if our world looked different, then people might be able, more people might be able to engage in more intentional kind of forms of self-care, but with where we're at, I think sometimes that very basic self-care is amazing. And that's kind of what, what's happening. And that's great. Um, but I, I wish we did live in a world where 
we had more space and time for for all of these things that are that would help us thrive as people and not as like workers or um you know yeah okay i'm feeling tension releasing from my body just right? hearing that that's that so validating so it. it was it's so oh, validating Last night, I actually went to sleep and forgot to brush my teeth. That's how tired I was. And I woke up, I was like, ugh. So I brushed my teeth this morning. And I thought, I'm so glad that I still brush my teeth before it's time to get up. It felt really important last night. So thank you. That was like immediately validating to today's experience. Yeah. And also the non-judgmental self-awareness that is part of self-compassion, self-care, caring for each other. I was hearing that in what you're saying, and I was also feeling a lot of additional compassion for how hard and not accessible that very specific aspect can feel. Like even being nice to ourselves, self-kindness can feel so hard, much Mm -hmm. less not judging because it's hard. And just sitting with that, like, I know we're all on Zoom, but like right now I can feel like this sort of, I don't know, something has come over here across this video from you to me, Sheila. I don't know if you're feeling this, Siobhan, but I can feel like maybe this is the Libra in me. Like, I don't know what this is. I love a nest. I'm like feeling nested in a different way, Ooh. like sitting in my seat differently. Um, I love what, I mean, I love our podcast. I'm going to say that a lot, but just sitting in this topic, I feel like I get nested here. I mean, in the seat, um, in the beginning, I was talking about being sweaty and I'm going to be red, but I'm actually feeling not like that. I'm feeling, I can still tell those things are going on, but there's something else sitting within me now. Um, I'm going to use your word from earlier. Like I feel awake, Um, to this conversation, like I'm like waking up into it. If I don't know if I'm making any sense, but like, I'm like waking up into this conversation. It's feeling so interesting to me. It's lighting up my brain. It's just incredible. I wanted to make sure I shared that. I feel the same way. I feel the same way with this conversation happening. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, we'll talk, let's talk about the other half of our uh, podcast title. What does the rest of us mean to you? And how do you identify within the rest of us? We'd also like you to identify your privileges in context here. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love that uh, term, the rest of us. I think it's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I've always felt like the rest of us. I think, you know, we're people who have been uh, marginalized, often minimized, uh, villainized, you know, kind of cast aside in many mm. circumstances or situations. But but I, I also feel like really proud to be part of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, some of the identities I guess I have that have like helped me feel part of that is um, or not necessarily helped me, made me feel part of that <laughs> is um, you know, uh, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the '70s from India. So I grew up uh, in Georgia as a brown person. There's a lot of like living between two worlds as the kid of immigrants. Um, And, you know, very like I never looked at that identity with pride until I was an adult. Um, I very much hated that identity as a brown person. I hated 
not having enough money growing up. I hated what I looked like. So there was just, uh, yeah, these very complicated dynamics going on. Um, yeah. And I, I think it was only until I was much older that I sort of realized the full extent of that trauma from that Mm -hmm. time and from that location. And yeah, it's still something I'm continuing to sort through as I live my everyday. But I I think also, and I'll, I'll talk about it more in the, when we talk about the privilege piece as well, but, you know, I think I was always pretty much always like the fattest person in my friend group, which definitely always made me feel really self-conscious and less than, and, um, you know, what else? Um, I also have PTSD and other mental health issues, which I think have definitely contributed to this sense of feeling alone or isolated, but I definitely don't feel that way the way I once did, because I think, mental health is, is discussed and, um, it's represented on like this huge scale. I never really imagined could happen, which is so exciting. And yeah. And I, I think like my own personal work and, and accepting just where I'm at, whether that is, um, in some state of recovery or not just, just accepting where things are at at that moment. And, um, you know, it's definitely made a difference in, even though being part of the rest of us can be difficult, it's also really awesome. There's so many people going through uh, a lot of shit, you know, and who have been through a lot and are are there for each other. So that's been really cool. Um, But I would say in terms of privilege, I think I do have a lot of privilege at this point in my life. Like I, um, I have a lot of education. I, I'm financially stable. I have, you know, a secure home to live in and transportation and and a really good support system. Um, And also what we were kind of talking about, like before I have time and resources for leisure activities and I prioritize those things, which absolutely is a privilege to be able to do that. And I was thinking about in terms of, of body size, I'm considered a small fat, so I can generally buy clothes at, you know, big box stores or, you know, fit into chairs at a restaurant or, you know, walk down the street without being harassed for my size for the most part. Um, so I definitely don't face anywhere near the, the level of discrimination that so many fat people do. But, you know, I have had that experience multiple times, like where you go to the doctor for like a cold and they're like, well, you should lose weight. I'm like, I'm not here. Uh, if I could lose weight, I'm here because I have a cold, but you know, so many, this is like, I feel like a very universal experience of anyone who is large bodied of being told that your weight is the root of like every health issue. Um, thinking about like the body privilege piece and also hearing your reflection about how wonderful it is to be Mm -hmm. the rest of us is not something I think I thought about when Siobhan first said the title of this podcast to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, yes, like people who that, that like, 
underserved, underrepresented, like let's talk for them kind of feeling like that instead we'd be talking and we, it would be the sharing of that. Um, I, and that feels like it's really similar to what we've already been talking about. Like, it feels like pressure. It feels like let's get it right. It feels like, um, how do we get all the stories in here? Like, how long is it going to take? Let's get them all in here. That kind of feeling. And right now, as you were talking and just sitting with how you were reflecting, it was sitting for me more like, um, when you said that you didn't really find pride in those things a little earlier until you were an adult. And I just, it was just making me want to sit with how can these conversations be accessible to those who are not adults is something that I was just really sitting with about that. And I was making me feel hopeful, actually. It's feeling hard, but hopeful. I say that phrase a lot, hard, but hopeful. No, I, I think of something like, um, like there's this Netflix show called Never Have I Ever. And uh, the it's about an Indian family. It's about a, a teenage Indian girl. And like that, that's wild to me, like in the coolest way. Like when I was uh, a kid or a teen, like there were no Indian people on the screen like that was not a thing and and especially to like have the story be around a teenage girl and it's really really cool so I do think that I do feel hopeful that younger people are going to have more exposure to stories that look like theirs like stories they can actually relate to so where hopefully so much of their energy and their their thoughts aren't spent on like wanting to be like someone else um, wishing they were different, you know, hopefully through seeing more, more people that look like them and have similar experiences, they might be able to embrace like a lot of the amazing things about those identities. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't, um, seen it in that way until we met with you. Yeah. And I was like, the rest of us, we'll talk about dismantling which we will obviously but like <laughs> I hadn't thought about the the positive that can come up from being part of the rest of us too it's really mm. really something to think about yeah. yeah I think I think for me you know like growing up in the punk scene like we that we we prided ourselves on being the rest of us like we didn't want to uh, be like anybody else mm. we wanted to be different and um so yeah that's something I've always like really valued actually and um yeah. Yeah. So I'm into it. Like it's complicated. <laughs> it's hard, but I, I like it too. <laughs> oh, I love that. And Sheila, you were talking about embracing that, being able to see yourself reflected in some piece of media. Um, and it was also like that word embrace there is really, I was getting like a really strong visual of someone hugging themselves. I really was like, my brain like went there with like a literal embrace. Mm -hmm. um, and that felt, yeah, I don't even know if I have a word for that, but it hit me somewhere deep. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm. Speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of deep, <laughs> um, I'm very interested in trauma-informed ways. So I'm not a therapist, so I get trained more under the, the title, like trauma-sensitive, right? That I'm aware of it, that I'm careful, but not really in the model itself. And it, but it's still something I'm very, very interested in. Um, 
And something that I have noticed is actually pointed out to me in a training that Siobhan and I are doing recently, that it does not account for trauma related to body size and or fatness. Um, if it was to be acknowledged in something like that, um, how might it look to acknowledge it? If you have a thought about that and also shifting um, perspectives for stigmatized clients. In other words, that it gets said outright explicitly in his share um, for people who experience trauma related to their size. Yeah. You know, I think so many models leave important people and experiences out of the equation, right? So I think it's about us expanding on models or, you know, often creating new models. Um, but I, I think shifting that perspective for clients really starts with us helping other practitioners to shift their perspective. Like, I think that's a really important part of this process. So educating other practitioners about the realities that people in marginalized bodies face and referring them to the words and experiences of the people who live it every day. Um, in terms of like client work, I really try to, to introduce the idea of trauma so that clients understand that, that the definition is much broader and more nuanced than they might have known. Um, I think it's really important for me to really acknowledge the suffering they've been through and showing my own outrage about it. I think that's really an important component too, because I think um, fat people so often think that they deserve the cruelty they've been shown. And so they don't necessarily think of that as traumatic, like what's happened to them. And so, you know, and I'm definitely not here to tell someone like you've experienced trauma, but my, my goal is more to help them expand from like a self hating view to more of that self-compassionate kind of view of their experiences and talking about things like intersectionality is really important um, as part of that conversation. But, you know, uh, I definitely am not really necessarily about positivity or even self-love, more about self-compassion. Because I see those as different mm -hmm. concepts. You know, I, I don't think, you know, there's a, that, that idea of you can't love, you can't love someone else unless you love yourself. Is that how it goes? Or, you know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I've always hated that expression. Mm -hmm. I just think that's such bullshit because I don't think I have to love myself first to love other people. Like some of the most caring, wonderful people I know do not love themselves to love other people like really fiercely. Um, so, you know, when we talked earlier about that pressure, I think there's so much pressure to love ourselves, like that that is this important component of a healing journey. And, and maybe, maybe it is for some people, but I don't think it has to be. I think uh, cultivating more kindness and compassion for ourselves is a, is a really loving act, but it doesn't have the same pressure of like, I have to love myself to be able to thrive because I don't think we have to. Yeah. That makes me think of, and we'll ask, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the future, but the idea of harm reduction, which yeah. we do a lot of work in, and we'll definitely be yes. talking about this, but 
we, you and I have talked about harm reduction in terms of relationship with body, and that's exactly what it makes me think of. And it comes back to this whole idea of simplicity. I, if I'm keeping it simple, I'm going to be neutral toward my body. I'm not going to like strive for this body love. This like I'm going to jump for the rooftops that I love my body or whatever. But I can aim for. I'm not going to say cruel things to my body today. Um, and so that's definitely what's coming up for me: the idea of this harm reduction in terms of acknowledging trauma in, in body size as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That body neutrality is so powerful, um, to just be with wherever we're at and not necessarily having to change it or judge it in that moment, but not adding that layer of self-hatred and self-criticism onto it. Also, I think being neutral is just a very powerful thing. Yeah. I remember telling, talking to Jen about it. Like as soon as I heard, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> there's this thing called body neutrality as a means of harm reduction. Harm reduction. I talked to my clients about it. I talked to my friends about it. I just, it, I see lots of things change my life and I try, and I, I am dramatic, but I'm not being dramatic. This time. <laughs> it really changed my life and the work that I do and the way that I talk to my body because there was such angst around I can't be positive about my body today but I can be neutral and that is very was very liberating for me yeah I'm so glad that that idea resonated with you and I just because I know it certainly has for me um personally and trying to um to to move away from like all those old voices of self-hatred and Mm -hmm. self-judgment um neutrality is something I just really connect with and and enjoy. I think it's an enjoyable state of being. Mm. As you're both talking about neutrality, it's reminding me both of the word acceptance Mm -hmm. and of pausing. I'm just really getting, Mm. I think for myself right now that to have neutrality or acceptance is the the part of the pause that you were talking about earlier, Sheila, that like Mm -hmm. the do, 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 the go, 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 the human doings that capitalism asks us to be in Mm -hmm. quote that was told to us in our last podcast guest recording with Tiana Dodson, Mm -hmm. um, that we're actually human beings. And just that being requires, uh, requires not the word I mean, um, can be facilitated by pausing pausing to be neutral, pausing to be accepting of our own experiences. Because I think the do-do-do, go-go-go kind of experience can really invalidate the pause. It can it can feel like it's not okay to do it. It's wrong to do it. Just when you were describing that some of your, that like talking to people, talking to clients that they don't may not know that something was traumatic because they felt like they deserved it. I could hear that echoing within myself in all sorts of different ways. There's my first journal prompt topic for myself after this episode, that there is like, um, and also like what we see of other people or what we hear can is such a highlight of what's going on, but it can feel like the answer because we've seen it. And to not pause and be neutral, even about things that excite us, um, I'm just really getting that for myself, is just so much a human doing, in other words, not very human at all endeavor. Mm -hmm. So I'm just getting that and listening to both of you. I don't know if that made sense, but ooh, I'm sitting with that. It did. 
Yeah, it definitely did. Mm-hmm. Oh. I feel like that's something I need to go right Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking okay. of it right now. I'm, I'm going to pause that for now, but I... Pausing. <laughs> yes, pausing. I love pausing. I'm all about the pause. <laughs> what is your take on health at every size? Where does it or can it fall short if you feel that it does? You know, I, I really appreciate the Hayes model. I think it's, it was extremely groundbreaking and yeah, there's, there's so many things that I appreciate it about it, you know, just the acceptance of, of all sizes. Um, but that understanding that large body people do face discrimination. Um, I, I mean, I think I'm, Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of components about it. I really love, I love the emphasis on movement rather than on exercise, uh, you know, in a traditional way. Um, I think what I don't like about it is the name. Um, I'm, I don't like the word health. I'm very resistant to the word health. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think, you know, Hayes definitely like that model has awareness of what a loaded word health is. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think, that the model is oblivious to that. You know, I just, it just brings to mind for me of, uh, you know, society's expectations or, or what society sees as acceptable for fat people. Like what makes a good fat person? A good Mm. fat person is, is trying to, is exercising. They're only eating certain foods and they're always trying to lose weight. Um, like they're always trying to like better themselves, like better themselves in quotation marks, like, um, and trying to be healthy, this idea of healthy, whereas like a fat person who isn't dieting or hating themselves isn't worthy of respect. Um, so health brings up a lot of, um, aversion to me, I guess. And I I think also health just encompasses so many different areas beyond the physical health. And I think Hayes acknowledges that as well, for sure. Um, and I think many of us acknowledge that, but yeah, so I I kind of wish that the model had a different name, (laughs) but, but all in all, I, I am on board. I'm totally on board with it. Hmm. What name would you give it? If you know, like what other words? I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I, I know I don't like it, but I don't, I'm not sure. I'll have to like ponder that. <laughs> In my head, I heard healing at every size. Ooh. I like healing at every size. Hmm. Ooh, I love that. Actually. Or healing without stigma. It both mm. occurred to me almost at the same time, mm-hmm. which I really have to think about because they're just like words floating around in my head right now. But uh, for my own embodiment journey, um, something that I don't think that I've ever like named for myself is considering healing over health because health comes with so many attached meanings from so many people. And I mean, we're humans, we're meaning making machines in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels like healing is so personal. It also asks a question about what that I don't think that the word health gets to. Like, it feels like a zooming out maybe is what I'm trying to say. Like health can be in there, but it's up to me. Oh, I love this consideration of the name. It's definitely something that comes up in conversation around health at every size a lot. It's written by people who may not be familiar as healthy at every size, Um, but it doesn't 
that that letter Y between the two of them has never quite gotten to like feeling any different for me. But just now, as I was hearing you talk and thinking about healing or without stigma, right? The intentions of what it's talking about just feels interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, second yeah. journal topic. <laughs> <laughs> I like stack them up. That's just. <laughs> yeah, because I agree. I don't really see a, a big distinction like adding the why, like the health at every size or healthy mm-hmm. at every size. Um, and I understand the, the purpose behind that. I, I think it is very important for people, you know, people have made this assumption that if someone is larger bodied, that that means they're like on death's door and like that their body is falling apart, even though they may, you know, have great physical stamina and, you know, do lots of movement. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times, um, like going back to, to like medical experiences where, um, you know, having, uh, family members making comments about my weight and that I'm not healthy. And I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, I have blood work that shows that like, everything's looking good. Like, Mm -hmm. and if, even if it wasn't, that doesn't mean something about me as a person, but so I do, but I, so I understand sort of the the intention around the name healthy at every size, but, but I also don't like the meaning associated with health. Like that if someone is healthy, that they are better than someone who is Mm. not. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Ooh, that's given me a lot to think about because also the five main principles of health at every size, four of the five are talking about you can perform health in the way that you would like, or you can be healthy in the way that you would like. And there's one of the five that says you don't owe anyone health. Mm. You get to choose what you do with this body of yours. Um, so I'm sitting with that too, as we sit here, just thinking about the difference there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of healthism, which takes us to our next question. So this whole question was like a, a random texting to Jen while I was brushing my teeth. Like, I'm just just to keep that in? <laughs> Go for it. It was so good. I was like, I think I told you, I was like, I'm not changing anything about this. I'm going to put this in exactly as it is. There's so much in the way you were thinking about it, even that I think is incredible. Thanks. Okay. This really makes me think of healthism, which is definitely um, something that we've been talking a lot about in this training that Jen and I are doing as well. Um, what do you think the connection is between healthism and harm reduction? Do you think they're opposites or maybe they conflate because there's a lot of individualism to them both? Um, in a text conversation with Jen about this as we we're getting ready for this episode, um, I said to me that harm reduction is adaptive. Um, it's, an, it's an individualistic thing, but it's adaptive. And I think that healthism is individualistic and maladaptive. Um, still kind of noodling this a little bit, but how do you view those two perspectives? Yeah, I, I think this is such a cool question. It's <laughs> really interesting, very thought-provoking. So, so I guess what came to mind for me first around healthism was like in the mental health profession, how, how the mental health profession has traditionally approached people with addictions. 
So there's this idea that if a client is mandated to treatment and doesn't want to be there, that they're less deserving of time or resources, Mm. Um, that a worthy client is one who's motivated and cooperative and compliant. You know, we've seen that word compliant many times, times, right? And so I think that's, that's one example of how clients or just people in general are, are penalized for being honest and authentic about where they're at. Um, and, and so, yeah, like, thankfully there are modalities like harm reduction and motivational interviewing and things like that, that are, are widespread. But at the same time, I feel like there are more people that don't believe in those mindsets in the mental health field. And hopefully I'm wrong about that. That's just been kind of, uh, my experience, but, um, so I think with harm reduction, So I think harm reduction has no expectation that like, or no belief that someone is more deserving if they're trying to stop a behavior. Um, And so in thinking about like that individualistic piece, I think harm reduction is an individualized approach, but very much about community too, like community acceptance, like because people who use substances are our friends and family and neighbors, we need to support them and empower them um, collectively. So, so harm reduction, I think, is this really beautiful mix of like recognizing and respecting individuality, but also embracing, like an embracing kind of approach. Like Jen, earlier when you talked about that feeling of an embrace, like hugging yourself, like that's what I think of when I think of harm reduction. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I like also this made me think about um, uh, healthism with uh, with larger body people like thinking about uh, Lizzo, for example, who like a couple of months ago, how she had posted about doing like a smoothie cleanse or a juice cleanse or something like that. And she got like huge judgment from people for um like supposedly betraying like fat positivity because she's been kind of forced into this role model um identity of it which I don't think is fair to her at all um and then she got all this credit from other people who liked that she was doing something traditionally associated with weight loss and And of course, there's just like this whole other layer of pressure and judgment on her as a black woman. Um, And so I just, I don't know, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I just feel strongly, and as I know you two also do, like, you know, whether someone is healthy or not is is irrelevant to their worth as a person like that, Mm -hmm. that, um, people shouldn't have to justify their very existence by saying like, I'm exercising, I'm trying, I'm eating well, like who cares? Like that's, that's cool if someone wants to do that, but that doesn't make them a better person than anyone else. Um, I just think it's crucial for people to just be true to themselves and to care for themselves, whatever that may look like. Um, and often people aren't going to like how someone chooses to care for themselves and, you know, that, that is what it is. It's, and everyone should be able to, to do what form of coping they need, um, to feel as safe as possible and cared for. 
That was great. Thank you. And listening to your answer in my head, I was saying, oh, maybe individualistic wasn't the word I was thinking of. It's individualized, which is not a bad thing. And I, I yeah, health harm reduction is individualized, not individualistic. I, that just really blew my mind a little bit. So I hadn't even thought of it that way. So thank you. Mm. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Mm, that was so good that <laughs> my brain is running a little bit, but I'm going to pause. I'm going to slow it down a little. I heard something in what you were saying about Lizzo was really reminding me about the socialization we all have to compare ourselves to one another, mm-hmm. as well as that health is a personality that we take on. Mm-hmm. And that the pressure to perform or not to perform about these things falls on the most othered of all of us. Yes. I was really hearing in what you said. And something I actually think about a lot, but um, want to journal prompt some more and really like noodle this. I love that word noodle and process (laughs) this because thinking about harm reduction, I was really sitting with, as you were expressing that, how agency and autonomy are stripped without harm reduction. It is a facilitator of putting those things back into the conversation, seeing people using substances, uh, people with eating disorders, people with um, mental health um, struggles, anything as a human being first, not as the illness, not as the substance use, not as the person doing a juice cleanse, like they're still a person first. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're allowed to have something to say about that. And they're allowed to do that. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. First of all, it's part of this, like, what is that phrase? Armchair X. Like I'm the armchair epidemiologist of this, mm-hmm. um, pandemic now i'm the armchair juice cleanse police person about this like it's just like taking on something like that having an opinion is so like such a like literally snapping it's such a snap like let's go straight to that Mm. it's also making me really sit here and think about harm reduction and how when we practice that how it separates us from that current narrative a new perspective to let people do their like just let people be just let people do it's okay it doesn't affect me Mm -hmm. you know like or any of the other people having a conversation about that it may really feel that way I could really see how it would feel that way because you've done this it appears to me that you've given up and now I can't get my mind off giving up right but that's actually all happening over there with the person saying all this not with Lizzo not with the juice cleanse and you know her new song with Cardi B has several lines in there very specifically about this like she just wanted to try something why is everyone still talking about it I can't even remember what the line is but like this week that song came out I think um which I found very what a powerful thing to be able to pause and reflect on it in a future piece of art and creativity. Thinking about being embodied, like one can actually be embodied and try something. Yeah. yeah. Be embodied and experiment. Like that is autonomy and agency and action that we can try things because we can just say no when we want to say no. Right? That's the ideal anyway, that we don't have to do something forever just because we decided it once. It's 
stepping away from the rigidity of something also feels like rejecting diet culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. It's okay if people do think it's like Siobhan and I were talking earlier and I said, you know, like diet culture doesn't get salads. They don't get to have those. I yeah. like them and I and want I like one. Salad. Yes. Mm-hmm. When I want one, I get to have one. I don't, yes. it's, mm-hmm. I don't have to avoid that because it's part of this, right? I get to reshape what that is for myself. The word reclaim comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can, even our perspective, um, and also we can be wrong. It's something I'm like sitting with right now. Sometimes it is embodied because we're wrong and noticing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that pause happens as much as I would like. It's because it's a very neutral and accepting pause. Not, it's not charged. It's like, wow, maybe this is different. Maybe mm-hmm. I have assumed wrong. Um, maybe I, maybe they're just a person with a public image and I'm seeing the tiniest of highlights about their life. Maybe I should not have an opinion about this, like at all, much less a strong one and throw it at them. So I was kind of sitting with all of that. Like, how do we keep each other from being embodied? Particularly right now, thinking about that inside of the context of the rest of us, like how do we harm each other as people who are othered? How do we judge each other from the same narratives that we're trying to rebel against ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like those kind of questions are sitting with me. Like where do we lose ourselves in that? Yeah. Mm. And I think it's like, I think it was you, Jen, who said it might've been you too. I apologize. Um, that we by nature categorize. And I think it's so easy to create this hierarchy so quickly, like good buddy, bad buddy, and I'm done, you know? And so trying to pull ourselves out of that narrative and just mm. be like, we don't need to have this hierarchy. It's really intentional work that takes a lot of pauses. At least I can speak for myself personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think like a harm reduction mindset allows us to see all the possibilities and all the, all the, I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to say. Um, I think just broadens our perspective on what may be happening for a person. Like I was thinking about, like in terms of thinking about celebrities, um, uh, Adele, a a few months ago or a year, I don't, I have like no concept of time. (laughs) Weird (laughs) pandemic time shuffle. Yes. Like the past two years, Um, (laughs) like, you know, Adele had, I think posted some pictures where she's, you know, experienced some significant weight loss. And I I feel like kind of the same thing happened that just happened with Lizzo too, where some people were really like hurt by this weight loss and then other people were like, oh, she looks amazing now. And just like all that, it just like the whole thing just made me feel so gross. Like mm-hmm. just this analysis and discussion of her body. But I also understand for, for many people who saw her as like this symbol of like, wow, like someone who is large bodied can be successful and beautiful and all these different things. I also understand how that could be painful for someone who is like put these expectations and hopes on this person who didn't ask to be a figurehead in that way. Um, so I, you know, I do understand why that there's hurt, but at the same time, 
you know, none of us know what's going on with her or yeah. why, why she has lost weight or hasn't, or people have don't lose weight or, you know, it's none of our business. And so I think what I appreciate about harm reduction is like, there's this, this not knowing and the not knowing is fine. Like we don't have to know everything to, to support someone and care for them and want to be there for them. Um, yeah, whatever their motivation is, whatever their, uh, dreams are, hopes are like, uh, or lack of, you know, it doesn't matter that just for them being a person that we want to embrace them and, and support them. Mm. Oh, I love how much we're weaving embrace into here because I just mm-hmm. keep thinking about hugging each other, yeah. which, you know, <laughs> with consent just feels not diet culture. Yeah. It feels just very hard heart and human centered mm-hmm. to consider embracing each other with words, yeah. with intentions, with like literally embracing each other just feels. Mm. And I also most in the pandemic mm, is too. people. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah so some people it. listening may not be huggers, but Siobhan and I, I don't know about you, Sheila, but we are huggers. So I miss it. <laughs> oxytocin that comes with that you get it looking in your dog's eyes that's something my sister has told me who is like an encyclopedia about dogs that they get oxytocin from looking in our eyes and also with close contact we also get that it's like the those I mean even if we get it we used to get it so expansively I didn't realize how much I took that for granted until I'm like I can't have that (laughs) yeah oh that made me hurt her a little bit um like a lot of it actually not a little bit um and I don't actually know if this is a word, but this is something I say a lot. So it's definitely a word, something I say. The pedestalization of people, putting people on pedestals, throwing, it's not just the expectations we throw at them, not just celebrities either. Um, Like as a dietitian, I see this as therapist, that there's like this helping people and also people who have no concept of trying to help other people, but it's still like, be the role model for us, right? Whoever these people are, it could be a lot of different things. Putting them on a pedestal involves expectations and even more so like a way that we disembody them, a way that we dehumanize them and other mm-hmm. them is to also throw attachments over there. But you're the reason why I'm okay with my body. Now that you, mm-hmm. anything has changed Um, And I've forgotten that that's not really what we're doing over here, this judgment about that stuff. Um, It's how could you do this to me, right? All of that comes in that like attachment swirl. And I was just thinking about how when people, I don't know if elevated is the right word. I think I'm going to choose a different word. When, When people have transformed in a particular way about their narrative, as you were saying, like that you're really interested in supporting new narratives. Sheila, the work that you did for much of your career with formerly incarcerated women is so heart-centered, so person-centered. How has this group of people left out of traditional wellness, body image, embodiment, and other conversations? What's What gatekeeping is in the way? A word that keeps coming to mind as you're talking is gatekeeping. What really gets in the way there? So almost all of the women I worked with had experienced abuse in some capacity. So if, 
you know, if for, for many of them, if their body didn't feel safe, they would seek things outside of themselves, outside of the body for safety. Um, like through relationship, which is so often how, how women, um, relate, um, to the world is, is through these different types of relationships with, whether it's with family, could be with drugs, romantic partners, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and it's completely understandable to me that anyone would desire those connections, even when they do cause harm. Um, so, so I think first of all, there's the, you know, the women experience a lot of judgment around choices that they've made that I think when we really look at those choices, they're, they're very understandable, um, just very human choices. Um, but I think they've been left out of many conversations related to their bodies. You know, I've worked with multiple women over the years who were shackled during labor, um, who, and then, and, you know, and they give birth and then the babies are immediately taken from them. Um, so many of the women I worked with just had all kinds of intense medical trauma um, and have faced so much discrimination from providers in medical settings. So, so, you know, why would they want to go to a doctor or seek out any kind of treatment if they've been just treated like shit and dehumanized when they have made those efforts to get medical help? Um, and, you know, I think when it comes to, to like non-traditional forms of treatment, those are often inaccessible, like due to costs, but, but also I think things like acupuncture, massage, yoga, have very traditionally been seen as like really like kind of bougie things that only a certain group of people um, should be doing or, or or deserves to be doing, even though of course everyone deserves the benefits of those alternative modalities, you know, especially something like yoga. Um, I know we've talked about that. Yoga has been like super, you know, commercialized as like this thin white woman's arena, you know, that that's that's what you're supposed to look like if you do yoga. That's what you should be striving to look like. Um, and I'm grateful like that now that many actual Indian people and people of color of all sizes, that their voices and teaching are being amplified in the yoga community. But I still think I'm not specifically part of that community, but, but there's obviously a lot of work left to be done there. Um, but there's wonderful models like trauma-informed yoga, which, um, you know, uh, we used to do with the women I worked with. And it was so cool. I mean, so there's a lot of ways we can make these things more accessible. Um, like I'm an acu-detox specialist, which is acupuncture in the ears um, for people who have experienced trauma or have addictions or um for helping professionals at risk of trauma or who have experienced trauma or addictions. There's, there's so many affordable or ways we can make these things affordable and accessible for sure. Um, but, you know, I think when it comes to body image for a lot of the women I worked with, um, they often might gain weight from, from stopping substances. So that adds this whole other layer of, of self-judgment because it's a very complicated thing to not only have your whole life change, but then your body changes too. And, um, and that health is piece of there's, I think there's a lot of expectations of people 
who are trying to change their using patterns or stop using that like recovery and trauma work looks a certain way that, that you have to be entirely sober to be able to, to be in recovery of some kind. Like there's all these really um, unfair expectations, I think, um, because those forms of, of healing, whether it's from addiction or trauma, it just looks so different person to person. And there's not one set way to do that. So, and I was also just thinking about how, how so many of them have spent their, their lives in survival modes. They haven't had time to, to stop and do this in-depth analysis of, of diet culture and beauty standards and all that stuff. And, but when given the opportunity to, and space to have this incredible insight and understanding and, um, and, you know, desire to see, see changes happen in that realm too, but, but haven't, had the time to do that when they're trying to survive. Wow. Um, I was just thinking about in the experience of these women, how much their body is not their own in what you were saying. Mm-hmm. It's making my heart break quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that what you were saying at the end there, that they are not afforded the time. It's not their fault. They are not afforded the time to be in anything other than survival mode, right? No, no thriving in in their view. And uh, what a toll that must take. Right. How exhausting that must be. Um, and just thinking about the trauma of it, how separated from their self and their body they may have to be to survive. Not just that they're in constant survival mode, but that being disconnected or disembodied may actually be essential to that. I was just kind of sitting with that. Absolutely. That substance use is um, often a great coping skill and does help people stay alive. And, and, you know, the whole reason why we need harm reduction is to offer people the services and supports to be able to stay alive as they are coping with whatever crisis or trauma they're going through. Um, That the problem isn't with the substance itself. The problem is that, um, is that drugs are not legal. Like that's, that's a huge piece of the problem here. and so, so yeah, I mean, and I was just thinking about, um, I mean, I think anyone who has been incarcerated uh, of all genders, there is that dehumanization that, um, that truly their body is, is not their own. Um, so, so that's a really hard thing to, to recover from once someone is not incarcerated um, because often they're still involved in the criminal justice system, whether through probation or parole. So it's like kind of this continuing lack of, of agency. And so a really important part of the work that we would do is, you know, how can they, they find agency and empowerment just, you know, in spite of the circumstances. Mm. And it's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard. 
Mm-hmm. It's reminding me of earlier when we were talking about how life is already hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's reminding me of my privileges, that life can be hard and I can do something. Mm-hmm. Life can be hard and I'm not being surveilled mm-hmm. in any way that I'm at least aware of or thinking about. All, I'm not thinking about it all the time. Um, hmm. Yeah, and not just surveillance, but check my, like this other element of like, check our boxes so you can stay a human in our eyes, a human who's allowed to be out here. Um, Maybe not even the human part. As I said that out loud, I wasn't sure if that was actually a thing that they're granted, but (sighs) sitting with the heaviness of that and thinking about how grateful I am that there are people like you, Sheila, who have even worked with this population Mm -hmm. of people, humanizing them, listening to them, understanding um, that this is a human thing that they're doing. I've actually never heard it described in that way. I've heard phrases like hungry ghosts and like, there's so many phrases like this that are still not, I mean, even though they may have a lot of value, I actually find a lot of value in that phrase, but there's not a human phrase, right? Even ghost is not being human anymore. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. About like what lives within us, what's stored within us and what it's like to be embodied even with that. Mm. How can we be human and embodied and life is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. How can we be human and embodied and not have to fight? Um, oh man, I can't think of what to say there, uh, how to think like to say my thoughts, but, um, and awake, which I guess is synonymous with <laughs> embodiment as we're talking about that. And also like thinking about how can we support that? How can other people in community support someone being able to be awake in their embodiment Mm -hmm. or not, depending on what the person needs. Mm -hmm. Earlier I was like, Ooh, awakeness. Oh, we should all strive for that. It's kind of what was going through my head. And I'm like, how painful is it to be awake? To be awake. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like things like, you know, meditation, for example, that's not, always a good thing for people. Um, yeah. for some people that's, that's really too intense and, yeah. um, uncomfortable and often re-traumatizing. So like, mm-hmm. I think also we just have to keep expanding the ideas of what, um, what coping skills can look like or what, um, these tools of well being can be that, yeah, meditation is definitely not a, a be all and all, um, for, yeah, for lots of people. Mm. there is no right way. There's only the right way for someone what's workable for them right now, especially right. Very like now, now, now about that. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I love about harm reduction is that we're not defining what has to be done for someone to feel like they're healing or to feel like they're healed. And that, that book you mentioned the hungry ghost. I think it's in the realm of the hungry ghost is one of the best books I've ever read about harm reduction. And also made me a strong proponent for decriminalization and legalization of, of mm. substances. And yes. because I, I don't believe, and I've said this many a time, I don't believe in bad or good coping skills. I believe in coping skills that let you survive. And maybe sometimes they need to be changed in that it becomes harmful instead of helpful, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad coping skill. But if this is what's working for you, the last thing you need is for there to, and abolish prisons, but that's another thing, but um, but the, 
the last thing you need is to not, in, in addition to have your humanity stripped away by the prison industrial complex, to also have this way that is helping you not be an option. Of course, you're not feeling embodied. How could you feel embodied? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, totally sad. Um, such a such a great book. I hope it didn't sound like I was poo pooing on that book. I just realized that I was honing in on the phrase. I love that. But book. that I thought that was really interesting. What you said though, um, mm. about how you know, so the like if someone is a ghost, like they're not in this yeah. realm. Um, mm. Yeah, because you know I'm a Buddhist. I like absolutely. I think the concept of the hungry ghost is really powerful, but I, I also, that really clicked with me. What you said though, is like, is that another form of separation between like, uh, you know, saying that people who are, you know, homeless or people with addictions that they're in this other realm. I think that's a big part of the problem is that, but that we're not just seeing them as like, this is, these are our community members. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was interesting to me, but you know, I, I do think what's, um, well, I think there's a lot of painful aspects to this conversation around, you know, folks who have been incarcerated. I think that when people are given love and support and, um, and that embrace we've been talking about, I think embodiment is very possible. Um, and, it might happen over years. You know, there's people I, I worked with for years and years and we just, you know, hung in there with each other and, and having someone who, who cares and who sees them and hears them can help foster that, that embodiment over time. And so I I think it's very possible for, for people to, to find that path, despite all the the struggles they've had and the trauma they've been through. Mm. Absolutely. And thinking something in what you just said was so incredible in thinking about like the pace that someone might need. Yeah. That even, I mean, thinking about modalities and all of our training and education and degrees and letters. When we think about these things, there's often a, this is how we do things here. And despite any unlearning, for example, that I might do, my brain clicks into that. It's so conditioned into me to be like, this is how we do things here. But what I was really, which I'm always fighting against and try to catch myself, even if I go there. And I was just hearing in what you were saying, this patience and thinking of the word embrace again, how patients can be such an embrace to go at our own pace, a pace of trust in a therapeutic alliance that the trust built there in the space means that things don't have to go at a particular speed. They can just be or exist or move Mm -hmm. um, and they can turn into something and they can also just be a place for healing because it's a place where they can go without judgment. I was hearing all of that in there and feeling really inspired and also feeling less hard on myself about that because I am so concerned to do that, to not resist re-traumatizing someone, to go back to those conditioned ways. Just feels, the tension of that doesn't feel bad. It just feels deep, intense. It's not bad, but it's just Mm -hmm. very present. Mm -hmm. 
We've talked about a lot of big and small perspectives in this conversation. What do you think we can all do to make a difference with what we have learned and unlearned today? Um, I mean, I'm definitely going to be uh, chewing on everything we all talked about today. It's such an awesome conversation. Um, I mean, I feel like self-reflection is just a really powerful tool for any of us um, doing this work, um, really needing to be honest with ourselves um, and taking that time for self-reflection. I think that that isn't really an optional thing. If you are doing work with people who are hurting or suffering, like we all have that obligation um, to do that as well. Um, you know, I think speaking up, um, I think if we have financial resources, um, spreading those to the people who are doing the work. Um, I think making, like we talked about, like making um, like tools of well-being as affordable and accessible as possible and welcoming too. It's not just mm -hmm. about the money piece. It's also about um, about it being welcoming and inviting for people to, to try different types of, of treatment or, or coping skills. Thank you, Sheila, so much for being here with us. Um, I'm feeling quite giddy about such a serious set of topics right now. Um, and as we finish up this episode today, what would you like everyone listening to know about what you're up to and how they can find you? And how do you see your career work continuing into the future? So, all right. So right now I've got a private practice, a private therapy practice called To Bear Witness Therapy. Um, my primary focus is working with helping professionals dealing with compassion fatigue and burnout. Um, but I also work with trauma and addictions um, and justice-involved clients. And I've done trainings for agencies all over New Mexico about compassion fatigue and mental health and harm reduction. So I love doing that. So people could feel free to reach out to me if they're interested in that. And um, I do teach a social work graduate class, which is definitely a way I hope to have an impact on the next generation of social workers because um, I think we all know social work is also a fucked up profession. A whole other <laughs> podcast episode, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, I do like doing that. So that's something I do. Um, and um, I don't have a great social media presence. I think I have a, a very inactive Facebook page. That, don't look at that. Um, um, I do my website, very witnesstherapy.com so people could reach me there but I do think this is going to inspire me to get an Instagram going or <laughs> um, something a little more exciting <laughs> you have so much to share so if you do share it with us we will definitely follow you oh yes <laughs> absolutely <laughs> this has been uh 
Amazing. Thank you for inspiring this podcast. I don't, I yes! know I told you this, but I've never said it again. So thank you for oh. making me do, you don't really make me, but encouraging me for like a hundred years before I finally did it to do some moving meditation. So this podcast came along. Yes. <laughs> I'm <laughs> um, inspiring this podcast and everything you do in this community. And this has been amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you both so much. And Siobhan, that means so much to me, everything you said. And um, this was really awesome. I just really enjoyed this so much, getting to talk to both of you and getting to, you know, mull over all these ideas and figure out new ideas together. So this was really cool. Thank you for for being in conversation with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of Us podcast. Episodes will be published every two weeks wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the podcast at our website, embodimentfortherestofus.com, and follow us on social media on Twitter at Embodiment Us. And on Instagram at Embodiment for the Rest of Us. We look forward to being with you again next time in conversation. Bye.